This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. President Trump made comments that he believed that the capital of Israel should be Jerusalem, and he has instructed the government to get ready to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem in the future. Those comments have set an anger amongst many people in the region, and according to some experts, has probably pushed back the peace process in that part of the world. But there are also business elements to this story because of the relations that the U.S. has in that region. To discuss this further, we are joined here in studio by Blint Kultikov who's an associate professor of finance here at the Wharton School. And right now also joining us on the phone, Camille Pekistang, who is a senior associate professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Boy, great to see you here in the studio. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Great to have you. Camille, great to have you with us as well. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, Camille, I'll start with you. In terms of the various business elements, how do you see this announcement not only affecting the, the, the region, but also the relationships within that part of the world? Um, look, there's a lot of issues in that part of the world at the moment, a lot of stress, a lot of civil wars, and um, the alliances are very tight. The needs also from one country to another are very, very intense. And so this announcement is unlikely to change anything at a diplomatic or corporate level in the foreseeable future. Um, so if anything changes, it will be at the popular level, and the popular may have some impact on the higher level, corporate or all other level of governments. Um, but right now, there's really other things to worry about than the shift of the of the uh, American embassy. Bullet? Uh, I guess uh, what I observed recently, <clears throat> the American trade within the region is actually reducing. It's because of the due to the reduction in the oil imports from particularly Saudi Arabia. So there is uh, sort of a bilateral relations between the United States and the countries and also within the same region and um, between countries such as Turkey and Israel and the rest. So all of a sudden, there was some sort of, um, uh, I don't say stability, but there is some sort of a knife edge equilibrium in the region. All of a sudden with this move, and this could be in jeopardy in the sense that all of a sudden there will be emotions on either side. And you find, for example, how Turkey is sort of reacting, not, I shouldn't say Turkey, how Erdogan is reacting, and other countries in the region. So all of a sudden, this brought in some uncertainty to the equation. And on the other hand, whether the business relations will change immediately, I would say unlikely. Right. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Your comments are welcome. Uh, Camille, I've seen a variety of articles that have looked at, you know, the market's effect in that part of the region. They've talked about real estate. Uh, They've talked about uh, the U.S. dollar and the impact that that it may feel. When you look at all of these kind of different elements, where do you focus probably the most? I mean, look, business, especially, look, the business is not the main training partner. The U.S. is not the main training partner for the region anyway. It is Asia and the EU. Um, I think commercial relations have been affected largely by the previous administration, by, um, by Obama's administration, partly because the alliances that um, countries and a lot of large business in the region also, you know, either government own or they are related to the government one way or another. So the politics of business are very important. And the previous administration has been tested some of those relations because it was 
you know, turning towards Iran, building better relationship with Iran, and being very critical of the Saudis in particular. Right. So new commercial relations developed, in particular when it comes to the weapons, armament trade, which is very important for the region uh, with France. But that was the previous administration. Uh, things have changed with the more recent administration, and uh, to a large extent, the issues that matter the most, Iran, the, the, what's going on with Qatar currently as well, uh, those are more important than the, than the shift of, of the embassy. And, um, and those relationships right now are relatively solid. Bullet? Well, I mean, I agree with most of that. But what's going to happen with this shift, as I told you, the, uh, some leaders, at least I know the Turkish part reasonably well, so I should not uh, comment everything else, that now has given Erdogan, for example, another ammunition to sort of follow his own agenda. And that's really mostly politics toward the domestic base, his own yeah. base, as yeah. opposed to business base. And when it comes to sort of business relations, even his own son has quite a bit of uh, or close relations carrying oil to Israel and all that. So I think there is uh, hypocrisy is always part of the international relations anyhow, <laughs> yeah. especially in that part of the world. It's part of basically any relationship these days, right? Exactly. So as a result, and you're going to hear rhetoric on one hand, and then uh, on the other side, business might be as usual. But uh, I think one of the things when you look at the region, so the, the whole, everyone, everyone thinks geopolitically in the region. Sure, I think yeah. the Saudis sort of have concerns about Iran. And therefore, they has, they've been getting closer to Israel, interestingly enough, because they worry that the sort of uh, Iranians now have a whole lot more impact in Syria yeah. and in Lebanon through Hezbollah. So as a result, they feel threatened. And when you talk to Saudis, it's all about danger of Iran. And it's not, they don't want to put it in the context of Shiite versus Sunni, but it's a Persian expansionism, which right. is, has these historical ties. And I think that's also related to the relationship between Qatar versus UAE at the same time. So when you have these complex structures, all of a sudden, when you throw a wild card, like moving the embassy to Jerusalem, it's just going to make a more complex sure. uh, situation in the Middle East. It doesn't, the region doesn't need any more... Uh, sort of complexity than, than it is right now. So that was the reason. So as a result, w we expect that um, there will be people uh, protesting, and I'm, I have a feeling that Palestinians are really tired of in the third after third intifada. I don't anticipate, but again, one thing I can tell about Middle East is that it's so difficult to predict. Right. Things could be so variable. So uh, that's what I see in, in the region, in a way. It's a bit of an, an unnecessary complication and in an area where we have almost three failed states, Iraq to a certain extent, Syria, and Yemen. Yeah. But all this complexity, and do we have to add one more? That, that's the sort of uh, my view of the world right now. We are also joined by Howard Pack, who is a professor of business economics and public policy here at the Wharton School. Howard, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. So uh, playing off of uh, what both Camille and Boulent have said, what is your reaction to, to what's going on there and uh, the potential uh, economic impacts you see from, from all of this uh, kind of adding to the level of angst? Well, my own sense is that, that once you look at the long-run picture and the broader picture, mainly my research has dealt with Africa and Southeast Asia and East Asia. And when I look at the world, 
I find the performance of Middle East countries not particularly impressive. I wrote a book recently on the Arab economies in a changing world. And the thing that's important to note is that they have, and it has been noted in the Human Development Report of the World Bank, of the uh, of the one of the Arab uh, agencies, is that there's virtually no interaction with the world outside of the Middle East. So the Arab countries as a group do not export to the rest of the world. They don't import much from the rest of the world. They don't translate many books into Arabic and vice versa, Arabic into English or French or or Spanish. And so these are countries that are basically small enclaves in the world. They're tiny. Singapore exports, remember Singapore's population is less than 4 million exports, more manufactured goods in a year than all of the Arab countries put together, which is an astounding factoid. But it, it is telling because you have a whole group of countries with population approaching a billion. And except for oil and oil-based products and natural gas and natural gas-based products, they don't produce much. One of my uh, colleagues at the World Bank, former colleague Justin Lin, who's the main economist in China, was vice president of the World Bank, he and I were working on a paper which you know, we were astounded at the absence of domestic production of anything other than primary commodities. So, you know, and it extends not only to manufactured goods, there are virtually no transactions of intellectual property. That is, if you measure payment, royalty payments for technology, the Arab countries as a group have virtually none compared to, say, a South Korea, which has huge interactions, licensing by Samsung of its products to, say, Apple and vice versa, but it's not only in high, the highest technology, which that is, but in all kinds of products. So, you know, I basically think that, you know, the U.S. You know, saying here's where our embassy will be is fundamentally irrelevant to long-term prospects because these are, are, are factors or traits which are going on for 70 years. I don't see a movement of, uh, of the embassies having any effect on this because in order to have international transactions, you have to produce something. And the Arab countries have simply not engaged enough imports of foreign technology or investment goods, machinery, so they're basically irrelevant in the world economy. That is, if you look at their share of almost any important economic magnitude, it's vanishingly small. So my sense is this is you know a small blip. It's mm-hmm. probably more important than if Reykjavik was relocated to Norway somehow, but it just doesn't matter. 
844-942-7866 is the number to join in with your comments or questions. We're joined on the phone by Camille Pekestang of Johns Hopkins University, Howard Pack of the Wharton School, and in studio by Bulin Gultikan of the Wharton School. I, I guess playing off of that, Bulin, and when you... When you think of Israel in terms of production, we are starting to hear more about how they are trying to affect the tech sector with some of the the companies that that are starting to make a play uh, in various elements. So I, I guess if there is something it feels like that could be the area to grow on, it may be tech. At least that's the way Israel feels, it, it looks like. I mean, <clears throat> Israel managed to be actually, it actually emerged as a high-tech economy and a society. It's an amazing story in many ways. And but that is pretty much based upon human capital, right? And Israel has that, and Israel has really world class universities, and also, as most high tech industries go, they have the incredible sort of spending on the and the security issues and the army. And I think that's the spillover from that. And that didn't happen in the Arab world. And I think that what uh, Howard was saying, which is absolutely right, and he points out the structural problems in the region. And the education is very much lacking. And there's yeah. a population, like even Saudi Arabia, with 70% of the population and younger than the age of 35. And that's not very educated. So to move into a high-tech area, you need, you need to have the people. infrastructure, you yeah. need to have the people. And the educational system is not conducive to that. And that's the problem. And I think with such a structure of problems in the region, moving from where they are to a functioning sort of economies that right. doesn't depend upon one product, oil, is going to take a long, long time. So, And they haven't done anything. I mean, this is like, they should have started decades ago. Sure, yeah. And that's the problem when you have the, the, the situation. So in the sense that this is more of a political issue than economic issue, because the fundamentals are not going to change so quickly. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, there is other problem that I can see in the region and available or the, the prices of oil used to make countries like Saudi Arabia or at least some of them viable. Yeah. And now they have a larger population and the oil prices are going down and probably there will be new technologies coming up pretty soon. Right. And that's gonna put further pressure. And but that's again not because Israel moved the capital from sort of or the US moved capital from Tel Aviv or the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But it's just a fundamental problem of these economies. So right. that's not going to go away. And I think he's also right <clears throat> when you look at the numbers, uh, the, the export items are really only Saudi Arabia used to be close to 60 billion. Now it's about 18 billion to the United States. Which that's is a huge drop. drop. But I'm sure that China and others will take it over. But right. the problem is I think the price of oil is going to go down. So those one commodity countries will have difficulty. Now this is it. They try, but it's going to be so difficult to diversify an economy from sort of single product into human capital-based right. economies. They might be able to do in Dubai because it's smaller. And they are very open. They bring some people. They are emulating, actually, Singapore. But we're talking about close to a billion or at least um, more than 250 million people just in the region alone. Camille, your thoughts? Uh, look, I mean, 
When I mentioned that the only reason I agree with what the other speakers are saying, that it's unlikely to have any kind of impact, the only possibility would be an impact, and that's a really lots of ifs, one after the other, is if the Palestinians were ready to react violently in a sustained fashion, like some kind of intifada that would go on for month and month, and if that would force other nations, other states, to really change their policies because of that. But the, scenario, the, the chance of that is very unlikely, partly because the Palestinians were not in a happy place before this announcement. There was this sort of like low-tech intifada going on for years. The war in Gaza was much more dramatic, for instance, than, uh, than the shift of the U.S. embassy from one city to another. Uh, and when talking about the tech in Israel, actually, it's interesting in a sense that some, a few, very few Palestinians are getting involved in that. And also it's the fact that on the ground and also from the Palestinians' point of view, some of the Palestinians understanding that a two-state solution is not going to happen and that they have better chance within a one-state solution uh, and asking for equality, full citizenship, full equality within one state. And this move in that sense sort of goes into that direction in like normalizing things and, uh, and absorbing the Palestinian into the Israeli economy and sort of trying to push for rights or for equal rights within the context of Israel as opposed to still pursuing this two-state solution. The two-state solution is kind of a mantra for the rest of the world, and that's why the, the American decision was important, because it was seen as uh, giving away something without getting progress on a two-state solution. But practically, I mean, very few people who are paying attention to that think that the two-state is ever going to happen. At least when it comes to the West Bank. Well, th then I, I guess, Camille, is it is it almost a recognition uh, by the Palestinians that 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 you you can't go down the same path that, that you've kind of gone down in years in years gone by uh, of violence kind of being the 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 be all that that affects things that that you have to look for a new path uh, econom economically. Some of the Palestinians. I'm not okay. obviously not saying the Palestinians as a whole, but okay. there's a growing movement within the Palestinians. Uh, it's embryonic right now, but it's uh, starting to give up on, on having pursuing rights through sovereignty, instead pursuing rights through equality within the state of Israel. 844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, Belen, the, the, the political process does play such a, a vital role here in being able to to kind of mitigate a lot of the a lot of the angst that we're seeing at this time and have seen over the last several decades. I know. I mean, this area is full of passions and people sort of believe strongly in their own positions. And as a result, it's and neither side seem to be compromising enough to accommodate the other side. So as a result, it's been really, I don't want to talk about who's, what is fair sure. and who's fair and all yeah. that. It's just once you get into that, you're never going to get out of that. But on the other hand, and they, I, I think Camille has a good point, that is that comes, I think Palestinians are coming to a point right now that whether two-state solution is feasible. Yeah. And actually, even given the current structure, whether it's feasible, because if you were to build, carve out an independent state with the current settlements and non-contiguous piece of land, that there's no way that one could actually build a state with, some, with an independent economy. And as a matter of fact, if you look at most of the uh, discussions, Oslo Accord and the rest, there's hardly any talk about the Palestinian economy. Right. It's all about political solution and as if the economic solution is going to just come out of it naturally. <laughs> right. And that's not the case. And, and ironically, in a way, that probably a Palestinian, if they were part of a peace settlement 
and if they are able to sort of come up with the conditions of an independent state, probably have a better chance than many of the Arab states in the region. Part of the reason because their education level is much higher on the average. Right. And certainly, depending upon how Israel could behave, but it would be more, if it is more accommodating, there would be a whole lot of a bigger market. Then also, I think, if there was a export-oriented economy, it's feasible in a way, right. but not in this current stage. You've, you've, you've uh, followed Turkey closely, and we were yeah. talking before we went on the air uh, about, well, and obviously Turkey has relations in the area and, and trade agreements, but how similar is what you've seen, what you have seen in Turkey and, and kind of the back and forth there to compare with what we're seeing now in this part of the world? I mean, Turkey had a traditionally, until Erdogan came, a, a policy of staying pretty much at a distance from all parties as a secular state <clears throat> and had very close relations with Israel, particularly through the military. Right. And when Erdogan came, actually, those relations became even closer. And even Erdogan wanted to broker a peace between Assad and Omert. And they, were, they came very close. Right. I talked to the Turkish president, Gül, at one point, that they were indeed, I mean, they had several times got together in Turkey. And when Omer started the Gaza war, that just basically collapsed the whole thing. And Erdogan, in his mercurial fashion, turned yeah. out to be sort of, uh, he went berserk, I think. And that's actually what happened with this Mavi Marmara. Yeah. And the relations have been in the downhill. Now they try to repair that. And it's not going to be clear what's going to happen. But that's also part of this political Islam. Ironically, in the past, it's the left that used to support Palestinian sort of uh, issues in Turkey. Right. Now, all of a sudden, the political Islam own the Palestinian issue all of a sudden after Mavi Marmara. So now it's Erdogan can play it the way he wants and the, right. the party. So it has become a domestic issue more than really a trade or an international issue. I just don't know how things will, because Turkey has become also a very difficult country sure. to predict because yeah. it's a one man as opposed to be a country with stronger institutions. So, uh, <clears throat> and that is, as a result, you see a lot of these sort of, uh, a, a, I don't want to say instability, but unpredictability and also a bunch of these now um, Popular rulers, Erdogan, yeah. Putin, Donald Trump, and they act somewhat differently than people used to act in the past. Right. They're more predictable. Now they want to be unpredictable. And that adds another complication. So this is how I see from the Turkish side. I, I'm sure that people are going to use. But <clears throat> on the other hand, Turkey still has very strong sort of economic ties with Israel. Like $4 billion last year, I think, in trade. It's, it's probably going to go more. I mean, they have a bunch of... Uh, it's very quiet. And on the other hand, once Israel develops the gas fields in the region, who's going to be the biggest buyer? It's right. most likely Turkey because that... Uh, that's going to be sort of it's in the interest of both countries but how those discussions will go quietly yeah and on the other hand so uh, and when you bring turkey into the picture it has the similar sort of uncertainty that seems to be prevalent in the whole region now howard how do you see the the impact of, of the entities outside uh, of the region or more specifically as blunt mentioned countries like turkey but also saudi arabia and syria and how are they going to be impacted by all of this howard 
Okay, we lost Howard, so <laughs> we will try and uh, we will try and get back with him uh, coming up in just a minute. Camille, I will throw that to you. How, how do you see the impact from countries like Turkey and and Saudi Arabia and, and Syria and the like? I mean, I don't think Syria has the luxury to have any kind of reaction to anything. Yeah. I think the only country that could pick up on it is Iran. Uh, because Iran has been claiming to be the resistance front, and Iran has been shaming all the Arabs, starting with the Saudis, for doing nothing for the Palestinians. So that adds water to the to to Tehran's meal in the sense that um, Iran, and with it the Iraqi government to some extent, but the Syrian government, Hezbollah will claim that again the mantle of we only want to care for the Palestinians, and you know the U.S. is uh, this is you know we're showing you the face of the U.S. He's backing uh, backing off on, on, on the agreement we had with them, the GCPOA. Right. Uh, they're transferring the embassy to, um, to, to, to to Jerusalem. They don't really care about Arabs. They don't care about the deals they made. They don't care about anything. They're disloyal. So I think this is the only that's, that will add to the Iranian propaganda machine, essentially. That's probably the strongest impact we can see. What is What ends up, in your mind, being the impact on the United States? And, and obviously... Making this move is one thing, but a lot of people wonder about what the, how the United States will be viewed in that in that part of the world. What do you think, Bolin? I think there is uh, already has been suspicion by the uh, sort of population in general. When you look at Middle East, there are people on the street and also the rulers. They don't necessarily their interests or thoughts necessarily align together. Right, and I think this is going to sort of help those or, or fan the fire or those who argue that the U.S. is not a trustworthy country anyhow. And they are anti-Muslim, and I'm sure that Donald Trump had yeah. enough rhetoric to uh, use that as a, as a sort of another tool. And that's not going to go well with, with the people. And on the other hand, <clears throat> when you look at the region, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, <clears throat> Bahrain, and these countries really depend for their security on the United States. Yeah. So they have no, no choice but just to follow the U.S. pact. They got deeply involved in Yemen and elsewhere, particularly Saudis. They have so many fronts right now. I don't know how they're going to handle all of that. So as a result, even the rhetoric might be resentful, but deep down they depend on the United States, both the uh, arms and then security reasons. So as a result, I don't think it's going to change. It never changed in the past. Camille? So. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think you can, I don't, never met an Arab with any illusion about the U.S. Um, sort of siding with Israel um, as a matter of principle. Uh, I think more dramatic in the case of the image of the U.S. was what happened um, in Kirkuk like uh, several weeks ago. Mm. Uh, because if there was one group that generally were very sympathetic towards the U.S., it was the Kurds. And, uh, and the Kurds felt that the U.S. would protect them, and obviously they lost half of their territory. They lost half whole, whole hopes of independence, maybe even some autonomy. And the U.S. has done nothing. And essentially, the U.S. has allowed Iran and one Iranian allied Iraqi government to sort of take back and to sort of destroy the Kurdish dreams. And that may have much greater consequences in terms of, you know, trusting the, the long-term um, uh, alliances with the United States. Great having you both with us. Thank you very much, Blunt. Great seeing you. Thank you very much Likewise, for coming in. Then. Camille, great to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. And we thank Howard Pack, uh, who had to run as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.